Well, congratulations. You are here and you are mostly on time. Please don't turn around at 11 o'clock and watch those who come in an hour late. <laughs> and, uh, I will make note of who they are and uh, send them a reminder next year of the time change <laughs> that happens. Uh, well, question for you. Have you ever caught yourself saying a phrase or perhaps doing something that after you say it or after you do it, you immediately think, hey, that reminds me of, of this other person in your life? Perhaps you've done that before where you, you say a, a friend's favorite catchphrase. It just sort of comes out of your mouth suddenly. Maybe uh, as you become a parent and the kids are acting up, you, you, what are you thinking? You suddenly just go to uh, mom's go-to warning when the kids are misbehaving when you were little. Those words come out of your mouth. Or you're cutting your lawn one day and you stop and you realize, wait a second, I'm following dad's fail-proof lawn care method for cutting the lawn. Without even thinking about it, we just start doing these things. I had a coworker once who uh, had a little catchphrase. Whenever you, he was asked, how are you doing? His response was, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. Now, I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I actually had to look that up. You know, the meaning is actually obvious. So you can look it up. It's, it's an obvious meaning. It took me a minute to think, I don't know what that means. And every time he said it, I hated it. Because I thought, it sounds so... Sounds so dumb. But then I find myself in a restaurant one day, and a waitress comes walking up to the table and says, how you doing? And what do you think I said? I said, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. And I paused, and I thought, where did that come from? Like, like why would I say those words? Or perhaps you swore, you promised, you made a solemn covenant that you would never, ever use a dad joke in your life. When your dad did it, it embarrassed you, it mortified you in public when he would say those silly things. You swore you would never have that type of abuse towards your own children. And then the day comes. You're in the grocery store. You're putting items from the cart onto the counter. And as they're going through, the cashier asks you, would you like your milk in a bag? And you suddenly go, no, just leave it in the carton, please. <laughs> and your kids roll their eyes and you realize... I am my father in that moment. You see, in these moments, we find that we unconsciously have woven other people's characteristics into our own lives without even thinking about it. Sometimes we consciously do this as well. When I first started out as a pastor and started, started preaching, I would watch a lot of podcasts, and there were some favorite uh, favorite, more famous pastors that I would watch. One in particular was a guy named Erwin McManus. Uh, about 15 years ago, I would watch him all the time, and not just watch him, but study him. I would try to copy his style. I would watch for his techniques. I would try to mimic his voice inflections. I would understand when he sat and when he stood, because he always had a stool on stage with him, so I had a stool on stage with me. And I would watch him, and I would realize he would go to the left, and he would stand here for one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And then he would move over to this side, and he'd be here for one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And then he would move back. I studied him to the point where I was becoming like a little Irwin, in a way. Now, it's said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but I learned enough about him to know that he would be the first one to say, no, don't copy me, don't follow me, and that he would be the first one to direct me to where my attention should be, and that direction going towards Jesus Christ. Don't be a little Irwin, be a little Christ, if you're going to mock a, a copy and, and follow somebody. 
Because the same effect is possible in our relationship with Jesus. That if we invest the time and if we invest the effort, then every aspect of our being can be changed. What we say, how we think, how we act can be changed by the one that we focus upon to the point where people start to see Jesus in you. And when they start to see Jesus in you, it opens the door for them to personally experience a life that is better with Jesus. Therefore, as we look at the core values for our church going forward, the third core value I want to introduce to you today is referred to as this, is referred to as encountering Jesus, where we weave Jesus into our story so others see him through us. And thereby, we don't become little Irwins. We don't become little copies of some other person that we are looking at and idolizing in our life. But we become little Christ. That, that phrase, little Christ, that's actually one uh, definition of the word Christian. I don't know if you knew that. But the word Christian can be defined in, as little Christ. It's, uh, it was initially actually a dismissive kind of a derogatory term that the powers that be used to refer to people in the early church who were continuing the work and the message of Jesus Christ. It's only found three times in the New Testament, and in each of those three times, it's, it's not really used by, by Jesus or by his followers. It's, it's in reference to the powers that be and how they're referring to those who are continuing the work and the message of Jesus. And the early church had done such a good job of weaving Jesus into their story that whenever people in the streets or, or, or priests in the temple or, or rulers in a palace came into contact with them, they would see Jesus woven into their lives and they would think, hey, they're just like little Jesuses. They're just like little Christ. And in some case, this would lead to persecution. But other times, more often than not, it would actually open a door for ministry. It would open a door for the good news of Jesus Christ to enter into a person's life. One of the greatest examples we can see of this, actually, and a story we're going to look at today is found in Acts chapter 3. I invite you, if you want to, to turn to Acts chapter 3 in your Bibles, on your phones there. If you haven't got one, you can grab a pew Bible, and it's found on page 884. And as you find that page and that passage in Acts chapter 3, give you a little bit of background to what's happening here. See, at the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke, the, the author of the book Acts, has just given us a brief description of what the early church looked like. And he talks about how there was about 3,000 followers of Jesus who were starting to gather in Jerusalem. And these 3,000 believers were, were doing life together on a daily, regular basis in a very intimate nature. And, and as they were doing this, they, there are many wonders and miraculous signs were taking place in their midst. And they were seeing growth within their group of 3,000 on a daily basis. Now Luke also tells us at the end of chapter 2 that one of the things they did on a daily basis is they would go to the temple to worship. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 3 where, where Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, are on their way to worship at the temple. And it tells us that as they're walking along up towards the temple, they come to this gate called Beautiful. And as you would approach the temple gates, it was common to see beggars who had been carried or had gathered themselves outside those courts, those uh, gates, for the purpose of pleading for money from anybody and everybody who passed by. Now, one of these men is a man who was crippled from birth. His friends had probably carried him there daily and placed him there. And as he's crying out for, for just a little something from anybody, he catches the attention of Peter and John. And Peter stops. And Peter looks at him, and he says these words to him. He says, silver and gold I do not have, 
But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he takes him by the hand, and he helps this man to stand for the first time. And as his ankles and his knees and his legs start to strengthen to the point where he's standing, he begins to jump. He begins with joyous praise to worship God, and, and then he starts following. He starts walking and following Peter and John to the temple for the purpose of praising God for this wonderful miracle that's happened in his life. Now, as you can imagine, this causes just a little bit of a commotion for those who are also walking towards the temple. And news carries fast, and it says there that that people come running. They come running to see what has happened and who is behind this miraculous event that's taken place. You know, so often in our lives, you know, our actions, the way that we live amongst other people, that's the catalyst. See, that's the catalyst that opens doors for the message of Jesus. And that's what's happening here. And this crowd is now gathered around Peter and John. And the crowd is now playing the role of beggars. Because they're begging for answers. They're begging to know more. And so Peter takes this moment to boldly share the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says, why do you stare at us? Why do you look at us as though some sort of power or some sort of godliness that exists within us made this man walk? He says, remember Jesus? Remember a few weeks ago when Jesus was crucified? Well, God was glor- had glorified him and has raised him from the dead. It says, we and hundreds of others have borne witness to this. We've seen it for our very selves. And it is faith in that name. It is faith in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. See, Peter's ability to influence right now is through the roof. The people are gathered around and thinking, how did you do this? And so he knows the first thing he needs to do is he needs to deflect all credit. He needs to deflect all glory off of himself in the proper direction. And once he has done that, he tells them. He says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, this call to repent is this this idea of of turning from the path of sin that a person's walking down towards the path that God has destined them for. And we're not talking here about a moment of sorrow or, or a situational remorse over something wrong that was done. We're talking about a person reorientating their life completely so that they begin to live according to God's plan for the life. And if a person will choose to do that, If a person will heed the first part of this verse, this to repent and turn to God, if they will do that, the second part of the verse has the promises. The promises, first of all, that when that happens, your sins are forgiven. All those wrong things that have been done in your life in the past, they are forgiven, they are wiped out, they are dealt with, and the consequences of those are removed as well in terms of of no longer having that eternally held against you between you and God. But there's also the promise that when our sins are forgiving, the refreshment of the Lord comes in. So that if you are feeling spiritually dry, if you are in a situation of being relationally impoverished, when life feels empty and you ask questions like, is this all there is to life? When nothing of the world seems to satisfy and the promises of the world are found empty, then refreshment from the Lord comes in. Like water being poured upon a parched land, we can find ourselves at a point where we respond as King David did when he said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Because he is my shepherd, I want nothing. 
The Lord guides me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake as opposed to the path that I was wandering for my name's sake. See, Peter and John had woven Jesus into their lives. Jesus was the Lord of their lives. The Lord was their shepherd. And others had started to see this in them. And because they had seen this in them, they had the opportunity to invite people to experience a life that was different than what they'd experienced on their own. A life that was truly better with Jesus. And we're told in chapter 4 of Acts that many who heard believed, and their number that day grew to 5,000 over this event. But not everybody was so excited. Not everybody was so receptive to this encounter with the name and the power of Jesus. Because as chapter 4 opens, we see that right in the middle of Peter's speech, the temple guard come up to them and they arrest them and they throw them in jail for the night. Now, now the main concern, the reason that they were arrested was because Peter and John were proclaiming a message of resurrection. See, the events of Jesus' crucifixion and the subsequent disappearance of his body from the tomb was still fresh. And the religious leaders had this fundamental opposition towards even the concept of resurrection, and especially towards this idea of a personal Messiah. They, they look at those more as, as a societal thing, as a nationalistic thing, as, as a metaphoric thing, where, where yes, we believe there's Messiah coming, but it's more of a nationalistic figure. It's, it's not this individual personal Messiah. And so they had been unsuccessfully trying to suppress stories of Jesus as this resurrected personal Messiah. And so they arrest Peter and John for preaching such things. Well, the next morning, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the supreme court of the day. And in verse 6, it says, And as it, the high priest was there, as was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. These are the guys that had participated in the trial of Jesus just a few weeks earlier. They thought they were rid of this. They thought they had dealt with this, that this was done. But here before them are two Christians, two little Christs, who are still proclaiming the name Jesus, who are still demonstrating the power of that name. And so as they feel a familiar threat to their authority, they begin to question Peter and John. And they ask them, by what power and by what name do you do this? You see, the religious leaders believed that they had the power. They believed that they had the authority over spiritual matters for the community. They were the ones who were educated. They were the ones who had been appointed to these positions. They had status and they had authority in the crowds when the people gathered. But Peter and John, these ordinary guys... These guys who are fishermen still have the smell of fish on them. They have no status. They have no privilege. They have no authority. They, they have an elementary education at best. And so these leaders in the temple think, surely there is more going on here than meets the eye. There must be something or someone greater behind this than these guys. And then in verse 8, it tells us that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly goes on the attack, and he says this to them. 
He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God glorified and raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, but he has now become the cornerstone for us. Because salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other under heaven given by, to mankind by which we must be saved. And when Peter finished, they knew what power and they knew what name had done this. Because in verse 13, we see this incredible verse where it says, they saw that the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, they were ordinary, and they were astonished. But they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that to be an amazing statement. I also find it to be an inspirational statement. They took note that these men had woven Jesus into their story so that others experienced him through them. You know, we're all ordinary people. We could all stand before the high priest and, and before his council, and he would probably look at all of us and say the same thing. You're just an ordinary guy. You're just an ordinary lady. Now, now, sure, I, I know we have success in, in occupations and in schools and teams and, and in our homes. There's places we have success. But when we look at the power to, to speak healing into another person's life, when we see a crowd of people or even single, just, just a single individual have their lives transformed by seeing it surrendered to God, that is beyond us. We are just ordinary in those situations. That is beyond us. Those are the things of God. And those are the things that only happen when God's power in the name is flowing through his followers. Now each week when I, I stand up here and I try to proclaim to people the truth and the hope and the victory that can be yours in Jesus Christ. I, I sit in people's homes or on a couch in my office as people come and they share difficult life situations and painful moments they're going through, uh, big decisions they're trying to figure out. And in all these moments, the only thing that goes through my mind is may they not see me, but point them to Jesus. You see, because 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks about the good news of Jesus that's been entrusted to us. But Paul says this about it. He says, we have this treasure of good news. We, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. You see, it was customary at the, this time of writing this verse for people to conceal treasure in jars of clay because these jars of clay had very little beauty. They, they had minimal value. They were very unsuspecting. It'd be like putting your house key in a flower pot on the back porch or, or carving out the pages of a book to hide money in and then put it back on the shelf. You, you just wouldn't expect to find treasure in places like that. If you're looking for treasure, your mind immediately goes to, I gotta find the vault. 
I got to find the area that's under lock and key, the area that's not so easily broken into, certainly not like a jar of clay. This idea of jars of clay speaks to our human frailty that holds these treasures of the good news that God has put into us. Because only a fool who finds the treasure would instead opt for the jar and see value and want to keep the jar. See, the Sanhedrin, they looked at Peter and John and thought, these guys are earthen vessels. They didn't expect very much of them. They saw and they heard ordinary, unschooled men. But they experienced the nearness and the familiarity of Jesus. Because Peter spoke with the boldness of Jesus. Peter performed miracles like Jesus. He knew scripture like Jesus. And the ability to do that only comes from spending time and investing effort in sitting at the feet of the master as we become more like him. You know, Paul spoke about this, his desire to be like Jesus in, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 when he says this. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, to become like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. When, when Paul speaks of this, this idea of knowing Jesus Christ, he knows that it begins with a factual knowledge. But it can't stop at just a factual knowledge. It needs to move towards an experiential knowledge of knowing Christ experientially, personally within our lives. So that as we come to not only just know about Jesus, but also to have a personal experience with him so that he can be woven into us. So that his message of grace, truth, and love can be part of us so that when we interact with people, they can therefore be invited to know him personally within their lives. But we also know that when we reflect Jesus in the world around us, not everybody responds so positively. That there are times when we will be rejected for that. There are times we will endure persecution. There are some places in the world where a person will be killed if Jesus is seen in them. And in that, a person participates in his suffering. You know, if we look a little further in the book of Acts, if you just jump forward to Acts chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, the Sanhedrin released Peter and John. But then chapter 5, they're right back in the courts again because they would not stop preaching. This time, it wasn't so good for them. This time, they decide before we release them, they need to suffer. We are going to flog them. We are going to scourge them, meaning we're going to whip them. And these whips tended to have pieces of like pottery and glass and metal on the end. So when they whipped a person, it would dig in. So it's not just a, a lashing. It is, it is brutalizing a person. And so they scourged them before they released them. And it tells us in chapter 5 that when they were released, they were rejoicing. Why would you rejoice after being scourged? They were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It was undeniable evidence in their lives that Jesus was seen in them, that they suffered. They didn't rejoice in the lashings. They rejoiced in the presence of Christ in them, that when people encountered them, people encountered Jesus. Somebody who only factually knows about this historical person, Jesus, would not rejoice in the scourging. Only a person who has had that personal experiential knowledge who cannot deny the truth, 
who cannot deny the presence and the power of Jesus' life in theirs would rejoice in such moments. So how do we grow in our knowledge of him in this matter? How do we weave Jesus into our story? How do we increasingly become these, these little Christ Christians so that when people see us, they see him? Well, there's three things I want to quickly mention to you on how we can do that. The first one is this. We need to learn from him. The best place we can learn from him is in the Bible, in the word of God, which is God's self-revelation to us. We read this in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. It's useful for training up in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We learn about him best through the Bible, through scripture. That's why we encourage people regularly to have their space in their place, to have, to have that physical space, to have that space in their calendar where they say, at this time of day or at this place in my house or at this place in my car or my office, wherever it may be, that's the place I spend with God. At this time of my calendar, that's the place in my calendar that I spend with God. But then to find their, their place in that, which is to find our place in his story, in his, his master narrative to understand what he has in store for us. You know, the more we learn about him, the more we learn about scripture, the more familiar we become to the point where it starts to become part of our thinking, our talking, our believing. Where situations in your life or if a friend comes by and, and shares a challenge with you or shares a, a, a good news story with you, if you have a worker at work or you know it's going through a difficult time and, and a, like a verse just pops into your head or, or the words come to you, and they can offer comfort and guidance in those moments. That only happens if you get the word in there by spending time in the word of God. Then the spirit can use those things to reveal God through you. The second thing is to pray to him. When we pray, we open ourselves up to the possibility of seeing the power of Jesus in our lives. To help us know him better, but also to grow in our trust of him. See, prayer, when we pray for things and about things and, and see prayers answered or, or receive comfort in exchange or receive guidance, whatever the outcome of that prayer may be, that, that's not just a growth in knowledge, it's also a growth in trust. Because we come to see that he is present and real and there and listening and does respond to our prayers. Have you ever seen that show? Probably a lot of years ago, there was a show on TV, a really popular game show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And remember, they had different lifelines on there. If, you get, if you're on the show and you get stuck, you, you could have a, a lifeline, and there was, you know, 50-50, and, and you could uh, ask the audience what they thought. Sometimes that's what we do when we have a problem in life. We go, well, I was going to ask the audience. What do you guys think? Sometimes we'll get good advice. But, but there's two other lifelines they had there. They had one which was phone a friend, but there's on the new version of the show, I don't know if it's still on, I don't know if you know that, but it's still on during, during the daytime. It's been cut down to a half hour because I guess it wasn't as popular as the hour show. But on there, they have a new lifeline called your plus one. And, and that plus one is somebody you bring with you that, that sits in the audience so that when you get stuck on a question, you can just say, hey, I'm going to ask my plus one. And it's this person in the audience you can reach out to who comes alongside you then, who can help you and support you and guide you in finding the answer to that question. Now, here's the thing. 
we can look at prayer as our plus one. It's going, well, I need to ask somebody else, and I'm going to ask God as my plus one. But the thing I want you to understand is whether we're talking about a phone-a-friend lifeline or a plus one, it presumes a pre-existing relationship. It presumes that you've talked to this person before you got stumped on a question. It presumes you knew this person before you went to this situation in this game show. You're not just saying, I'm going to pick some random person out of the audience. I'm going to put my life in your hands. You have a nice haircut and you seem well-dressed. Why don't you come on down here? I'll put the whole game on the line with you. It presumes you know the person, that you've talked to them over time. And that's why you brought them. Because you know them. And that happens through through spending time in the Word, but also happens through the communication and learning to grow in awareness and trust in God. And so that when the game is on the line, you can confidently reach out to, your, to God. Paul told us in Philippians, in every situation, by prayer and, pe- and petition, with thanksgiving to present our request before God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. See, when we talk to God, we grow in our knowledge about him, and we can experience him and grow in our trust of him personally as well. And there's a third one as well, serving with him. You see, all these other things, praying and reading scripture, we can do on our own. We can do that in the privacy of our vehicle and the privacy of our homes and never interact with another person. But if we're truly becoming these little Christs, we need to be interacting with other people. We need to have a growing heart for other people. In 1 John, it says, Let us not just love with words and with speech, but with action and in truth. If you read the Gospels, if you had to sit down and open the Bible and just pick one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read it from start to finish in one sitting, I guarantee you that one thing you will encounter is that Jesus had a heart for people. Especially if you read the book of Luke. You'll see this incredible heart for people. And if we're going to be properly representing him in the world around us, this heart for others needs to grow within us as well. Because if we're going to be successful in allowing people to encounter him through us, and so that that door for his message can be opened, it's probably going to start with a catalyst of our actions about how we interact with them and how we engage them and, and, and how we build that trust and relationship with them first. That opens the door for the words to follow our actions. So as I close today, I just want to draw you back to two key verses that we covered here. The first one is this. When, when Peter said to the crowd, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, this is the first step. This is the first step in growing in our knowledge of, of experiencing and encountering Jesus is that if we're going to know him, we're going to be able to weave him into our story, first with understanding that he loves you. Understanding that he loves you and desires to be in a relationship with you, but, but there's just something standing in the way of that, which is the sin in our lives. But Jesus loved us enough and, and, and wanted to be in a relationship with us enough that he is the one who came and lived and taught and ultimately sacrificed his life to pay the price to remove that sin so that we could experience victory instead. And when he went upon the cross, gave his life upon the cross, the penalty of our sin was taken care of. And all that remains is for us to to hear that good news message. But then to believe and to receive that gift of forgiveness from him. 
And as we do that, we can begin to live our life in relationship with him and grow in our knowledge and grow in our trust of who he is. And as we do that, we can learn to grow through learning, praying, and serving with him. And as that takes root in our lives, there's a second step, which is when they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've received that forgiveness and that freedom, if that transformation has taken place within you and and it just needs to be lived out through you now, I, I ask you this question. When people see you, would they say that? Would they take notice? Would they take notice that you had been with Jesus when they listen to the words and see the actions and and how you interact with them? Or is there an area of your life that still reflects a lot of the me and not so much him? Maybe it's the way that you respond to conflict. It it could come from uh, a concern that you you have uh, about certain individuals. It could be a lack of concern for people in general. It could be from the way that you talk, the, the way that we interact with people. Maybe there's an area of your life where sin still reigns and has too much of a control. Maybe it's the way that we try to control situations and in life events that take place and trying to organize our future as opposed to surrendering ourselves to God's future. Whatever it may be, is there something in our lives that we can prayerfully surrender to God today so that when people encounter us, they would have a greater sense that we have been with Jesus? Because there's danger in not doing that. The danger is that we miss the opportunity for us to experience all that Jesus has in store for us. But at the same time, we miss the opportunity potentially to reveal him to other people as well. But even worse than that, there's a possibility we can misrepresent him to the world by saying, I am a follower of Christ. I'm a little Christian. And the example that we live helps them to define what that means. May we not misrepresent him through those things, but may may they clearly and purely see him through us when people encounter us. As the worship team comes to join me on the stage here, would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, for those who may be gathered here who have, are at that point in their lives where they have not yet surrendered themselves to all that you have in store for them, to all that you have made possible in their lives through the sacrifice of your Son, God, I pray that the spirit that is among us within us here, that your presence here would, would just prompt them to say, yes, this is the water on that parched land. This is the name and the power upon that emptiness that can resolve that and can heal that. Jesus, we thank you that you, that you came to teach and to, to guide and to be present so that we could weave you into our lives. And I, and I pray for those who have not taken that step, Lord, that in these moments right now that they would that they would know that that is the step that needs to be taken. In these moments right now, they would just surrender that to them, to you, Lord. God, for those of us here who know that there's a certain area that we wrestle with, that we're struggling through, Lord, that we just, we know when people see that, it's not glorifying and honoring to you. God, I pray that you also would, would just speak truth and hope into those moments, that if we've been going through it for a while, that hope can seem to fade, but God, when you are with us, Jesus, there is always hope. Lord, help us to be a church family around those people, to, to share those burdens, to share those sins, those failures, but then to lift one another up, to find victory in Christ, that we truly, more and more each day, 
would come to know you personally and experientially so that when people see us, they see you. 